Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive. Some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Asked and answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear-cut. So we're bringing you right to the source one-on-one candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. This is Julie Smith, the director of the Transatlantic Security Program, and I'm very honored today to interview uh, a friend and colleague, Tamara Wittes, who is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. She also served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department from 2009 to 2012. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Julie. So we are asking a collection of senior women uh, who work in the area of national security uh, across Washington and beyond a series of questions about what it's like to be a woman working in national security. And one of the questions we often ask people is, I think all of us have had moments where people come up to you, maybe at a conference or on some panel or just at a neighborhood barbecue, and they say to you, what's it like being a woman working in foreign policy slash national security? And I think everyone has a different reaction to that one way or another. How do you handle that opening question uh, when somebody comes up to you and asks something like that? You know, it's interesting because often the form that question takes in my circumstance is, what's it like to work as a woman in the Middle East Oh, right. on yes, foreign yes. policy Makes and sense. national security, yes. which is, you know, to the extent that we think of Washington as a man's world on this issue, <laughs> the Arab world where I've spent most of my career working is even more so. Yes. Uh, but even there, it's changing. Um, I think that for those of us who came up in the generation I came up in when there were very, very few women and we would often be one or two in a room with a bunch of guys, there are some kind of adaptations that we had to learn (laughs) in order to make space for ourselves at the table. Um, Secretary Albright always talks about learning to interrupt. Right. And I think for me, that was a big one. And in fact, I remember um, shortly after I started at the State Department, uh, I my boss counseled me one day that I interrupted people a lot. You're kidding. <laughs> and I realized that that was something I had learned to do in think tank land, where if you don't sort of jump into the conversation, it's just going to roll right on by you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that came full. That, that was a 180 twist. Yeah. And, so uh, I had overcompensated. overcompensated. I had to pull it back. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I think we all try to develop different skill sets and tools to kind of adapt to this environment. But yeah, I suppose it can backfire. Or maybe it works in one, as you noted, in one environment, think tank land, it seemed necessary, but certainly not maybe to some in government service or wherever, who knows. 
anyways, what about the question, um, you know, sometimes you have people that also come up to you and say something like, what would the world be like if we had only women working on foreign policy and national security? Um, do you subscribe to this view that the way in which U.S. conducts foreign policy would change in any radical way or in any minimal way or change at all? I mean, how do you how do you deal with that type of question? How would you answer that? I have to say I'm I'm skeptical of the notion that women would inherently because they are female bring a different approach or or different content with the extreme form of the argument to foreign policy that somehow if women led the world it would be more peaceful right, exactly. um, and I think that we have you know examples of strong female leaders from Margaret Thatcher to Golda Meir to Indira Gandhi you know that sort of complicate that narrative but I do think that there are ways that women interact with particularly with one another. And there are things about women's experiences that if you bring them to the table, it adds richness. And I think it helps the overall picture of diplomacy, of um, thinking through America's role in the world. And, you know, that's just a broader part of the the business case for diversity, right? Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. the more different experiences you can bring to the table, the more different ways there are to think your way through a problem and the more likely you are to get to a good answer than if you have everybody thinking the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, as far as women's experiences, I would point to two dimensions in particular. One is that whether it's socialization or genetics or a bit of both, I think women are more attuned to how they are being perceived, how they're being read, and the sort of uh, emotional um, reception on the other side. That's a crucial skill for diplomacy. Uh, It's not just empathy or the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but it's really understanding as you speak, how are they hearing you? Sure. And is your point getting across? Um, And I think that helps whether you're talking about an interlocutor in an international negotiation or the team-oriented activity of government policy making and implementation. Um, And then the other dimension, I think, and there's mounting evidence of this uh, in academia and amongst practitioners, is that thinking through the gender dimensions of international problems brings you to a fuller picture of what's at stake. Uh, and what's important in, for example, conflict resolution processes or in extremist radicalization, if you're not paying attention to the role that women play in society, in socializing people in the economy, then you're missing a big part of what's going on. And a lot of women's roles in those regards are not formal. They're not recognized. So bringing those out, I think, does help improve policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the concern some of us have is that sometimes people want to take that issue set and set it aside as its own area of study and attention, say, in the State Department or anywhere at the UN, and have trouble sometimes integrating that work into the day-to-day grind of policymaking. And yeah, kind of, I just might experience was that I've seen over the years, even the Defense Department has had an interest in this, but then would assign a team as kind of a standalone. I know it's evolved, but when I was there in 09, it felt kind of in isolation, that 
particular aspect of work, looking at women in conflict was kind of set off in a corner. And we had to work to pull those people into the day-to-day discussions about what we were doing in Afghanistan or the Middle East or wherever. Right. I mean, you don't want to sort of um, segregate it or marginalize it by creating a special section and sort of check the box and say, look, we're doing it over here in the corner. You know, but I think climate change is another interesting example that started out as a, quote, special interest group within both the State Department and the Defense Department. And then over time, you know, not only were the climate people within those institutions able to lobby to get the issues elevated, but they also went on to do other things in their careers, and the issue got more integrated. And now in the military, environmental awareness and climate change and its impact on security is much more integrated. Yeah. No, it's a really good point. I like the climate example. It's good to keep in mind. Um, Recently, uh, switching subjects a little bit, um, CNAS convened a group of younger women who were just kind of on their way at the start of their careers in foreign policy and national security. And one of the things we heard them talk about in that session um, was the tendency for women sometimes to self-censor. So when the promotion comes up or someone has an opportunity to speak at a conference or submit a paper in academia, whatever it might be, women will sometimes ask themselves more so than their male counterparts, am I qualified? Should I throw my hat in the ring? Am I at the right point in my career to seize on this opportunity? Do I have the right set of experiences? And will sometimes determine in isolation in their heads that they're not going to go for that opportunity, the promotion, whatever it is. And what we like doing is speaking to people like you uh, that have clearly made their way very successfully in the field. How many times have you caught yourself doing that? And what, what, I know, I do it all the time. I still do it. <laughs> yes. But what, what's, first of all, do you have any interesting anecdotes in that regard? Um, and what, what's the fix? How, well, how do we course correct to say, look, maybe you shouldn't, a certain level of, you know, you want to be humble, you want to have some self-doubt occasionally, but how do you uh, ensure that it's not constraining, that it doesn't serve as a constraint on you then reaching for that next opportunity? Sure. So, look, I actually think this is a crucially important challenge for women in the field to work on. It's something that we know exists across professional sectors. Um, Women won't apply for jobs unless they think they meet all the criteria in the job description, whereas men do if they think they meet half. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's a lot of data on the extent of this problem. I think that I think that it's useful, especially if you're younger in the field, if you're coming out of a PhD program, you've just finished your dissertation, you know one thing really, really, really well. And everything about the way academia socializes you is to invest in going deep into the one thing that you know and not to go broad. And I think in the policy realm, it's much more important to show that you have some breadth and and agility, right? And that you can look at how different things fit together, that ability to integrate different pieces into a broader picture, a strategic picture is a skill that becomes more and more and more important as your career progresses. So it's fine to have an area of deep expertise, but I think it's good for women who are 
you know, younger in the field or newer in the field to look for opportunities to, to spread out. And there are lower stakes opportunities. Like, for example, this is something that I used to struggle with all the time um, when I was a junior fellow at Brookings. You'd get a media call, you know, CNN International, because there's a crisis, right? And they want somebody exactly. who can talk about Morocco. And I would say to myself, well, I, you know, I'm not a Morocco specialist. And sometimes I would give the producer the name of someone else. You know, I actually became known as like a good Rolodex. Producers would call me for referrals. Referencing others right? instead of putting yourself on. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized that, you know, if you go and you do this in your field of deep expertise, you're still only getting 90 seconds on a cable news show with very, very simple questions. And so actually you, with the background that you have, the training, the methodological lenses, the context that you bring, you can read a couple New York Times articles and do a two-minute cable hit on something outside your area of expertise. And that's pretty low stakes. Um, it is very, very doable. And it gives you practice and a chance to learn. Yeah. You just take half an hour and learn something you didn't know. Right. And, right. you know, so that would be my advice is to do that as much as you're comfortable. But the other thing I think is not all on women to push themselves outside their comfort zone. I think there's also a really important role for mentors and sponsors to reach out and say, this is a great opportunity for you. And then when a woman says, well, I'm not sure, I'm not qualified, or maybe it'll take me in the wrong direction, you know, to, to be that sponsor and say, no, I think this would be really good for you. I really think you should apply for this, or I really think you should give that talk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good, that's a really good point because I think women then think, well, it's on me to try and change, you know, alter this blockage I have about I'm not ready. It's not the right time. But it, women do have to do some work. But I think, yeah, we have to look to those male mentors and bosses and colleagues to encourage women to step forward and say, you're, you're ready. And that's happened to me personally, where someone said, you actually should go for this promotion and this oppor professional opportunity that I was thinking in my head at the time. It's just not, I, I, I need more years under my belt. I also think it's good to challenge yourself to take on some of those media opportunities because you also can get into a situation where they may book you to come on to talk about Morocco, but in the car ride over to the studio, something else has changed. <laughs> yes. Now they believe they still have just a live body, and they want you not to talk about Morocco, but it's changed. It's a rock now. <laughs> um, and, and that's terrifying, but that's also the world we live in. And to get used to situations where you might have to come up with 90 seconds on a subject on the fly, uh, I think that's that's a good real life experience it's a little terrifying at times and i've been there too where we've literally changed continents in the span of 30 minutes and it's frustrating um and i think the media could do a little better job but not necessarily a bad thing to sometimes find yourself in those predicaments and challenge yourself to do it i agree i also think um well two things number one i think it's okay to say I don't know a lot about that, but here's what I can say, right? <laughs> I mean, they always tell you in media training, don't answer the question. Answer right. the question you, you want to answer, answer, right? <laughs> so you can always reframe it and then talk about what you do know. But it's okay to say, I'm not an expert in that, but here's what I can offer you. And to do that with confidence because yeah. you still have something to offer. That's right. And you probably still know more about Iraq than 98% right. of the people watching that 
particular television show. The other thing I would say is I actually learned something about that kind of flexibility from working in the State Department and seeing my Foreign Service colleagues who, while they learn languages and spend time, you know, learning about specific regions and, and try to specialize, they are generalists. They have to be. And every day they are asked to write memos and offer policy advice on things they're not expert in, and they help each other. They reach out to their friends who do know and say, and say, give me five minutes on arms sales to Bahrain, you know? Oh, exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. You and there's no shame in that either. If you think of everything you're asked to do as a learning opportunity, then instead of, am I qualified to do that? You say, is this something I want to learn about right mm -hmm. now? Exactly. No, that's, that's a really, really good point as well. Well, sadly, we're out of time here, um, but I hope this won't be the last time that we can get you over to CNAS and our small podcast studio here uh, to talk about these types of issues really appreciate you taking the time, appreciate all you do to help women of the next generation enter the field and uh, come back and talk to us some more in the future. <laughs> right back at you, Julie. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.